0: Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
1: Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have another roller coaster of a week for the Supreme Court opinions. Two weeks ago, you might recall, we had no cases. Last week, we got five all on one day. And this week, we once again have one.
0: Yeah, honestly, these last weeks have reminded me of a particular ride at Bush Gardens Williamsburg. I, I'm not going to tell you which one it is in case you haven't ridden it before. Uh, but in the middle of this ride, you're, you're going on your merry way, and then they stop you in a dark tunnel. And you're just like, why, why are we not moving? Is the ride broken? I broke it. I broke the ride. And then out of nowhere, the floor opens up underneath you. It drops you like half a story, and then they shoot you out into the rest of the ride. And I feel like that's what SCOTUS has been this month. Uh, You know, we were on our merry way, the floodgates had opened, and now we're just sort of stuck in a tunnel. But we know those floorboards any day now are going to open. And this is going to be an insane end to the term. I think at this point, GC, if I did the math right in order to get done by the end of the month, we're at like eight opinions a week, something like that.
1: Yeah, that that sounds right. It, I I would be so surprised if the term did not get extended. But in the meantime, don't worry, we're still doing better than ESPN. We have a lot of SCOTUS news to talk about and an interview you won't want to miss.
0: I, yeah, I love that we're still uh, bashing on ESPN here.
1: <laughs> well, up its first in the news Current Solicitor General Noel Francisco is expected, or rumored, to step down soon. It's not unexpected. This is the summer of the last year of the president's first term. It's a pretty common time for longstanding officials to move on. We'll be very excited to see what Noel does next. Uh, his replacement, at least temporarily, will probably be his deputy, his principal deputy, Jeff Wall. Uh, But there's a rumor that Patrick Philbin, who is presently Deputy White House Counsel, might be under consideration for the post. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, both of those guys are extremely smart, talented advocates. Um, So yeah, we'll keep you updated as we learn more. I know that the nature of being Solicitor General is that you argue a lot of cases in front of the Supreme Court. That's sort of just how it goes. But it has certainly seemed like Noel Francisco has been all over so many high-profile cases over the last three years. I mean, y- you think about it, even just from a couple weeks ago, you had the, the tax return cases, um, before that, the, the census case, the redistricting case, agency deference in Kaiser v. Wilkie, uh, the scandalous trademarks case. Uh, he was involved in Masterpiece Cake Shop, where he had oral argument in that. So he's just been all over the place and and it's sort of like this turning point of what what are we going to do without No. Francisco arguing what what is life now
1: (laughs) well I don't know but we'll find out I'm really curious to see where he goes next whether private practice or you know who knows next up though we have opinions or I should say opinion in Lomax now Lomax you've probably heard about it because it is a very exciting case to nobody at all
0: except me (laughs)
1: i might me be too. the only person
0: me too throw me on the excitement bandwagon
1: okay excellent that's two of us and probably the litigants but i'm not sure about that the issue in lomax is whether the prisoner pleading three strikes rule applies dismissals without prejudice what's the prisoner pleading three strikes rule well i am delighted to tell you it is a rule found in 28 usc 1915 g That says a prisoner may not file any civil lawsuits in forma pauperis, that is, free from having to pay filing fees, if on three or more prior occasions while incarcerated he has filed an action that was dismissed on the grounds that, quote, it failed to state a claim upon which relief may be granted. The circuit split about whether a dismissal without prejudice counted as a strike. The Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion by Kagan, held that, and this is correct in my view, that the plain text of the statute makes any dismissal with or without prejudice a strike. Now, Lomax might seem esoteric and not one that most people interact with on a daily basis, but I have a theory that Lomax actually has pretty broad implications for how district courts handle successive pleadings, not just in this context, but more generally. And uh, so if you would like to learn more about the esoteric issues in Lomax, I wrote a piece in Law 360, which I'd be happy to send you.
0: And in case you forgot that COVID-19 is still a thing, it is, and we have some case updates. The Justice Department this week filed an amicus brief with the Ninth Circuit in support of a free speech challenge to California's COVID-19-related ban on, quote, in-person political protests, unquote. According to the DOJ, this brief is part of Attorney General Barr's April 27th initiative directing the review of state and local policies, To ensure that civil liberties are protected during the COVID-19 epidemic. One of the petitioners in this case is a firearms instructor who had been seeking to hold a protest, uh, I believe, on the grounds of the California State Capitol building, uh, part of his objection to the state's delays in processing background checks for gun purchasers. Another petitioner is a candidate uh, for the U.S. House of Representatives who wanted to organize a protest um, related to some of California's COVID 19 restrictions. And so the the DOJ, in its brief, brought up a, a couple main points. Uh, the first, and I think biggest point, is that the First Amendment means to the DOJ that even during pandemics, the state does not have carte blanche to ban peaceful public protests. And then very, very interesting to me was how they tied this in to the George Floyd protests that we've seen over the last week, Um, The brief essentially said the real and legitimate national outcry over George Floyd's death has actually shown the importance of peaceful public protests to maintaining our civic fabric. Moreover, going forward, it could raise First Amendment concerns if California were to hold other protests, such as the ones desired by these petitioners, to a different standard than they held the George Floyd protests.
1: Yeah, this brings up an interesting point about church challenges, too, where you have seemingly different standards applied to different activities, and at least there are hints of sort of political uh, considerations going on behind the scenes. With these church challenges, you recall last week that the court rejected an emergency challenge brought by a church to California's COVID-19 order, which treated churches worse than it treated certain businesses. Uh, last week, I discussed robert 's opinion he dis- He provided the deciding vote, and i I articulated what I thought he got wrong the week after the court issued that opinion. Various cities, towns, counties in California updated their covid nineteen orders and prominent in some of them was a ban on gatherings of more than ten or twelve people unless it was a protest in which case the orders allowed for a hundred people now, this sort of disparate treatment between Protests and churches or one kind of protest or another kind of protest uh, strengthen these kinds of uh, challenges to the orders because they undermine the claim that these are uh, advancing a health policy concern. Because as we know, COVID doesn't distinguish between a uh, protest and a church service. So I would expect you might see more uh, renewed challenges from churches in light of these orders that undermine uh, the ostensible health policy considerations that are motivating these orders.
0: Yeah, this this was certainly, just even in terms of police practice, a, a very interesting thing that you saw being brought up, for example, in New York City, where... Um, I mean, you had you had protesters arrested for things like assaulting police officers or breaking curfew, but not for breaking COVID-19 restrictions, um, where, you know, just down the road in certain Jewish communities, police were, were handing out fines, you know, for, for kids being in parks. Um, and so I think you saw not just even in explicit policies, but also in just some of the internal practices for, for how different types of similar gatherings were were treated. This is going to be very, very interesting how this affects legal arguments going forward.
1: That is it for SCOTUS News for this week. But next up, I interview former federal judge and former Attorney General Michael Mukasey. Judge Mukasey, as he prefers to be called for reasons you'll learn shortly, has had an incredible legal career. He was an AUSA, a district judge in SDNY for 19 years, a law professor and attorney general, and now he still practices law at the firm Debevoise Plimpton. Well, I'm joined today by General Michael Mukasey. General Mukasey, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, General, settle a debate for us. On a previous episode of the podcast, my co-host Amy and I had a little debate about the proper title for an attorney or solicitor general. The common convention is to call them general, but I think that that's incorrect. General is the adjective in those titles. So, what do you think?
2: Well, I have to tell you that the, that the the um, calling, being called general um, used to kind of disconcert me when I was when I was in the office. And um, the the British um, attorney general is referred to as attorney, uh, which struck me as, as struck me as much more rational. Um the um the, the the title general um can be a little bit embarrassing, particularly when you're in the company of actual generals. Um and I, I uh I, I used to kind of avoid it. Uh luckily there were people who referred to me as judge, which is a lot more comfortable and so we could avoid that uh problem.
1: Do you actually prefer being called judge or general since you've got the luxury of both?
2: If the choice is between the two of them, um, I think I would prefer judge. Although um, I recall arguing once before the Fourth Circuit, and they have a wonderful tradition of coming off the bench after the argument and uh, shaking hands with the lawyers. It's it's a it's a really lovely tradition. And one of the judges, uh, as she passed, reached her hand out and said, "Is it is it judge or general?" I said, "Here, it's Mister." <laughs> <laughs> That's actually um, either either judge or mister is fine.
1: I see well i'm I'm glad to see that you're on the side of reason when it comes to this this general thing it's It's very strange to me, but you know old traditions die hard i'm I'm on a losing side of a crusade here. Me too <laughs> did so you had quite the career in the law. Did you know that the law was always going to be your calling?
2: Actually I did not. In fact, um when I was younger and, and thinking about what I was gonna do, I thought I really wanted to be a, a journalist, a newspaper man. And uh I did that for a while. Um and it was kind of uh it's kind of transitory, um and a little bit unsatisfying for that reason. And also um it occurred to me that if you write for for newspapers or for or for, for television or radio, then then you are in essence simply describing what other people do um, and you're not acting on events yourself and that it was, there was a lot more opportunity to act on events if you were in the law than, than um, if you were simply writing about what other people did. So I chose a legal career.
1: So why the law rather than say uh, business or um, something else where you're in the thick of things?
2: Well, I had I had no experience in business. Nobody in my family um, was involved in business in any in any meaningful. And I did have relatives who were lawyers. So, um, in fact, I I worked as a uh, as a as a messenger and as a fill in librarian and so on for the law firm that that one of them was at. Uh, And So I got a taste of it that way.
1: You said in a previous interview that one of your regrets is not clerking. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Sure, um, I think um, clerking gives an opportunity. First of all, of course, to develop uh, a relationship with somebody who's actually a judge, and there and there, and thereby give you a, an insight into into what that into what judging is all about. And secondly, just from a professional standpoint, it gives you a chance uh, to watch a lot of other people make mistakes that you then don't have to go out and make yourself. Um, and I didn't I didn't get that chance, and so um, I went out and made them myself. <laughs> it's a little bit more difficult way to learn the trade.
1: Well, I clerked and I I made mistakes on the job, so you know I guess I guess they're to be made wherever you are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. I, in fact, um, sometimes the mistakes um, on the job can be can be more difficult and embarrassing than the mistakes off I, I I know of one law clerk who clerked for Judge Edward Weinfeld, who was a legend uh, in our courthouse in the Southern District of New York. And uh, part of the legend was that he would always come out on the bench at precisely 10 a.m. as the clock in Foley Square was striking 10, he would come out on the bench. And uh, one day he was poised in the roving room to come out on the bench, and his law clerk um, closed the door, and he heard the telltale click of the lock uh, engaging. And uh, the clerk didn't have a key. Oh, No. And the judge kept saying, I want, I need to get out there. And, of course, the clock started to strike. And eventually uh, they did get the door open, but the judge was a couple of minutes late getting out on the bench for the first and only time in his career. Um, and the poor law clerk never lived it down.
1: Oh, boy. So tell me, uh, you were a judge uh, 19 years. Isn't that correct? Yes. So tell me, how did you figure out what worked for you, with your law clerks, as you you know came into this uh, for the first time
2: well um, I decided that obviously people law clerks um, and other people have strengths and weaknesses, and that rather than uh, put them on cases on a random basis uh, that we would sit down when we got uh, a bunch of motions and and allocate them based on what people's strengths and weaknesses weaknesses appeared to be, and then um, the law clerks would continue on that particular case for the for the duration, and that worked fairly well. Rather than assigning by you know odd number even number.
1: Sure. Tell me a little bit about how you used your law clerks. Did you have them draft orders to begin with? Did you draft orders? Tell me a little bit about that division.
2: Well, um, it worked in a variety of ways. Uh, they would. Um, Draft um, orders or or opinions in um, relatively, I mean, in in civil cases, largely. Um, I did all the criminal stuff, at least the first draft myself, um, and I would draft some, and then we would exchange drafts and go over them and edit them, and um, get them down to what I regarded as as a as a as a passable final final version. But nothing ever went out unless at least four pairs of At least, at least four eyes Mm -hmm. went on it, and often six.
1: So, when you were a judge, how did you choose your clerks? What did you look for?
2: Well, um, usually uh, by recommendation of uh, people on faculties or lawyers, Um, and uh, to a certain extent, I let the admissions committees at, at what I regarded as as Better schools do my work for me, um, and I chose from uh, uh, when I was when I was choosing simply based on on, on resumes. I chose from um, a group of about half a dozen law schools, and uh, but then I would also take recommendations from people who would call up and say that they had this or that person who they thought was particularly uh, able, and often those people were after the interviews um, were given clerkships.
1: So if you were to give a law student who wanted to clerk a piece of advice to maximize his or her chances, what would you say?
2: Um, Learn how to write. Uh, Learn how to write clearly, succinctly. Um, I I used to distribute to my clerks on the first day of their clerkship an essay called Politics in the English Language by George Orwell, uh, which I think is the best and shortest guide to clear writing uh, that I've ever encountered. Um, and if they took that essay to heart, uh, then they usually um, gave me a kind of, the kind of product that I could use. Um, it was, it was a, a, a wonderful lesson in using simple words, not complex ones, and uh, uh, thinking truly about what it is you want to say rather than simply letting the words arrange themselves for you.
1: Now, I'd love to talk a little bit about your journey to the bench. Can you tell me about um, – did you know you always wanted to be a judge?
2: I decided after about um, – I guess after about f- five years of practice that I wanted to be a judge. And uh, um, I know I know that it was about five years because I, during my interview for the U.S. Attorney's Office, which was about five years into my career, I was asked by um, – Mike Seymour, the then U.S. attorney, how I – if I could could get my wish after 10 years, where would I be? And I said I would be a district judge, so I must have wanted to do it by then. Uh, But I found that when I went to court, uh, I would watch the judge, and my reaction would be either I would – yes, I would do it that way, or no, I wouldn't do it that way. And so I found myself kind of um, figuring out how I would do that job if I ever did it and eventually came to want to do it.
1: So, how did you end up getting nominated?
2: Um, it's uh, well, nominations to the district court are within um, the, the power and discretion, largely, of United States senators. Um, senators uh, generally from from the from the when they're from the same party as the president. Although in New York, um, the senators because. For a long time, we had one senator from each party. Worked out an arrangement whereby the senator from the party that controlled the White House got three picks, um, and to, to every one uh, that the other senator got, and that was statewide. So the the idea was to get yourself known to a United States senator and get that senator to know that you want to be a judge.
1: And how did you do that?
2: Well, there were two people who were close to uh, then Senator D'Amato, and um, they both knew that I wanted to be a judge and they both got the word to him. And, and uh, eventually um, I got a call from his office saying that uh, uh, he was he, he, he was willing to submit my name.
1: Now, you actually managed something which in the modern era is pretty unprecedented in that while you were on the bench, uh, members of both sides, both political parties um, supported you. And in fact, Senator Schumer once put forward your name as a potential Supreme Court pick and later supported you in becoming the Attorney General. Can Can you speak a little bit to the bipartisan support that you earned and whether you think that's possible to cultivate in today's political climate?
2: Well, um, I tried. I mean, i I don't know. I don't know whether I earned it or not, but I tried um, to decide things uh, on on the merits and without without a view toward who would approve and who wouldn't. But I have to tell you that the um, the proffering of my name for the Supreme Court, I'm not sure, was an exercise so much in bipartisanship um, because um, at the the context in which it occurred was that Justice as he. Then, as he was initially, Justice Roberts, before he was nominated to be chief justice, um, he was uh, nominated to replace Sandra Day O'Connor, I believe. And um, when he was nominated, Senator Schumer said that he was going to oppose Justice Roberts, but he wasn't going to oppose him simply because he was a Republican uh, nominee, why there were many Republicans uh, he could support. And he enlisted three or four people um, of whom I was one. And those people had um, two things, as far as I could tell, two things in common. One is that they had been nominated by a Republican president. And the second is that they didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of ever being nominated to the Supreme Court, or so I thought. In fact, um, the day after he did that, he did it, I believe, during a television program. Um, I saw one of, my for- one of my former law clerks on the street, and he smiled at me and said, oh, I see Senator Schumer gave you the kiss of death yesterday. (laughs) So meaning that, of course, any endorsement from him would likely not be met with enthusiasm in the White House at the time. So I'm not convinced that that one was entirely uh, (laughs) heartfelt.
1: Well, I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about your time now as attorney general. You were President George W. Bush's last attorney general. What were some of the biggest issues that you faced at that time?
2: I think some of the biggest issues um, related to what had been regarded as the politicization of the department and uh, the need uh, to pull back uh, from that. Many of the people who were involved in the episodes that led to the claims uh, had, had left. Uh, but I think that um uh, th- there were there were lingering effects and a lingering effect on uh the morale of the department and I think the point was to get everybody back to to doing what they did, which was to practice law and that was what I tried to do um soon after i I got there the uh well, I tried to keep the profile of the department and my own profile low, we had a um, a situation presented by the destruction of the uh, the, the tapes of, of uh, by the of, uh, interrogations by the CIA, and the question was what what to do about it. And um, I appointed John Durham to do an investigation into that, and he later came to the conclusion that there were no charges to be brought. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of many assignments that he's had. He, of course, he has a one now that's. Uh, sensitive as well. And, and, uh, I think he will do a superb job just as he did there.
1: Mm. When you were attorney general, did you find that your experience as a judge, um, affected your work there? A, a, was it a, a benefit to how you f- approached that second position?
2: It was, um, it was of, of, I would say of marginal use. Um, the, um, uh, it helps obviously it helps analyze issues. And so I, I, uh, I brought, I brought that to the, to the job, but, um, it's obviously very different. You're, you're part of the executive, not part of the, not part of the judiciary. And, um, um, so it, there's not, there's not a whole lot of, of, uh, of overlay. Um, I was, I had been chief judge when I was in in the Southern District, and that had some administrative responsibilities, but that's uh, that's no preparation for um, the administrative responsibilities that go with being attorney general. You're running a um, an organization that's got well over 100,000 people in it.
1: Now, one of the issues that's currently swirling around in the media uh, and Congress at the moment is uh, the FISA courts. We've seen that the FISA process was abused there are calls for reform. Do you have any thoughts on this debate?
2: I have some thoughts on it. I think that um, the the um, the calls for – some of the calls for changes in FISA are totally unwarranted or really unwise. I mean, we can't go back to um, a pre-9-11 approach to intelligence gathering. Um, I, have, I have some skepticism about the FISA court generally. Um, it, you recall it was a, it was an outgrowth of uh, abuses under the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. and uh, the thought was to was to have judges oversee um, uh, sur- oversee electronic surveillance, but judges um, have no special training in intelligence gathering. They don't have um, they don't bring a body of knowledge. Um, and the idea was to 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 get. If the idea was to get judges to approve uh, applications, obviously they were relying principally on what they were told by the government. Um, that's not to say that they rubber stamp these applications. They don't. I had personal experience with that. They they review them very very vigorously, and there's a back and forth frequently that people rarely hear about uh, in which this or that application is felt to be inadequate and has to go back uh, to be supplemented. But um, my own view is that to have um, the executive applying to uh, the judicial branch in, in, a, in a proceeding that is not in any real sense judicial uh, for approval to conduct electronic surveillance is, is, uh, is kind of a mismatch of talents.
1: Would you say that the current system, the executive going to the judiciary, is, is sort of the the best that we could create? Do you have an idea for improvements?
2: The, um, the system used to operate on, on the assumption that gathering intelligence, as opposed to gathering evidence for criminal investigations, um, was entirely the business of the executive, and that um, the executive would um, conduct that activity And uh, with its success or failure in in, uh, protecting the country would would rise or fall politically. Um, I guess those days are gone. But um, I think that we have to – there has to be in place a vigorous system uh, to permit the gathering of uh, of intelligence. The problem that I think we've encountered is that it relies ultimately on having good, sound people. Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing as a system that will run um if you have people who are not sound um, it's uh in any system is subject to abuse I think we're in the united states we're we're very much um, taken with the idea of mechanical solutions you know we have a government that uh that that has a, a balance of of uh, uh, of of responsibilities among legislative, executive, and judicial, and there are various mechanical solutions to to, to, to problems, and we have a, a fascination with creating mechanical solutions to all kinds of problems, and some, sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, and it doesn't work if you don't have honest people in place, particularly at the top.
1: Well, with the last few minutes we have left, I'd love to ask you just a few parting questions of the various legal hats you've worn. Do you have a favorite?
2: Oh, the the favorite, the the one that I wanted to do for for the longest time was was um, was to be a judge, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. that tremendously while I did it. Um, becoming attorney general was something that sort of happened to me, like you know, like measles. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and if if you could go back in time and change anything about your career, would you?
2: I've never thought about that, and um, I saw that on the list of of, of questions, and. Um, I don't think that I would. Um, I I don't do retrospective uh, uh, analysis of my own of my own career, and um, I don't do highlight films. Um, <laughs> there were there were performances in, in, in court that I would just assume change if I could change them, but that's not really fundamental. I mean that's just the fact that I made mistakes, and um, I learned from them, and, and mm. so I guess they were they were useful.
1: And the question we ask all our guests on this show, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about?
2: Oh, I think without doubt it would be Robert Jackson um, because of the clarity of his um, writing and his thinking and his um, understanding of the powers and the limits of the powers of, of judges and uh, the function of, of, of a constitutional system. And I would I would want to talk to him about um, the, the current situation in which we find ourselves and see if he could figure any way out uh, for the courts in particular um, uh, in, in the nature of the questions they deal with and how they deal with them. Uh, I would love to hear him on that subject.
1: Interesting. Well, Judge Mukasey, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you again.
1: So, Amy, I think that settles it. I win our debate about what you call an attorney
0: general. (laughs) I I think uh, if Judge Mukasey uh, has anything to say about it, you certainly win. I I also think on Twitter, looking back at our poll, um, the the clear runner up was actually for uh, grand legal poobah, and my vote is for grand legal poobah. Oh, mine too. That is definitely how we should refer to Attorneys General from now on.
1: Excellent. I'm with you.
0: All right. So moving on to trivia. Today, it is my turn to try to stump John Carlo. I am
1: so ready for this.
0: Uh, You certainly sound ready. So you you ready to hear your theme for this trivia? Hit me with it. Earlier this month, we celebrated the 76th anniversary of D-Day, the Allied invasion of Normandy. So our theme for John Carlo today is drumroll, please, World War II. Oh yes, I am so in this. All right, we've got a couple questions. First one, first one. I believe in you. This is a. We'll go with a, a warm up question. You ready? Yes. Which infamous Supreme Court case upholding the forcible detention of over hundred thousand Japanese Americans during World War II? was only just explicitly disavowed by the Supreme Court in 2018. Bonus points if you can tell me which 2018 case disavowed it.
1: Oh, I am so on this. I got this. The case is Korematsu versus United States. And in dictum in Trump v. Hawaii, Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the majority, disavowed it.
0: At this point, I almost want you to quote verbatim what it said. But okay, you you nailed it. That was correct. <laughs> it's Korematsu v. United States. And in the 2018 case of Trump v. Hawaii, the court wrote, quote, Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled in the court of history, and, to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. So you're not actually two for one because you got the bonus points on that one. Heading into question two, up one. Which future Supreme Court justice then serving as California Attorney General, was a leading proponent of the detention of Japanese Americans during World War II.
1: Oh, man, I feel like this is probably Earl Warren.
0: You said it as a question, but you got it correct as a statement. Yes. So it was. It was soon to be Chief Justice Earl Warren. As California Attorney General, Warren referred to the presence of Japanese Americans in that state as, quote, the Achilles heel of the entire civilian defense program. He later came to regret his role in the internment program, writing in his memoirs that, quote, it was not in keeping with our American concept of freedom and the rights of citizens, and that when he thought about the innocent children being torn from their homes, he was conscience stricken. So you are now three for two with your bonus question. Oh,
1: yes. I got to be honest. I was pretty worried about doing trivia, so I'm feeling good.
0: Doing good. Doing good. Batting over 1,000, which is weird. That's weird to comprehend the stats there. <laughs> question number three. Which Supreme Court justice worked as a codebreaker during World War II?
1: Oh, I, I know this. This is John Paul Stevens.
0: It is. Stevens was recruited into naval intelligence by his college dean, who had himself been a codebreaker during World War I. Oh, actually, I
1: I have another fun fact about this. Oh, do tell. John Ball Stevens' work as a codebreaker, he was involved in Operation Vengeance, which saw Americans find and
0: shoot down Admiral Yamamoto's airplane. You just stole my thunder. You stole my thunder for the, the rest of these facts. Um, though I will point out, uh, some have uh, taken issue with the term code breaker. It is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, it turns out the Japanese radio code had been broken before the war. And so Stevens' really top secret role was actually applying the broken code to unravel intercepted radio signals. And he uh, did have a very important role, as you said, in some very important parts of World War II. And he was actually awarded a bronze star for that work. John Paul Stevens was not the only justice to have served his country during World War II. which other future justice served in the Navy as an intelligence officer also in the Pacific Theater?
1: Oh, man. Um, I'm going to need a hint.
0: So, the only hint I have is that this is a justice we have talked about before in trivia who... He left uh, to serve uh, after he had had a very successful college athletics career.
1: Oh, man, I asked you about this guy two you weeks did. ago. And now I've forgotten my own question. Oh, boy, this is
0: embarrassing. What's the answer? It is Byron White. Oh, yeah. Byron White white initially wanted to join the marines but was prevented from doing so because he was colorblind he was awarded not one but two bronze stars and believe it or not wrote the intelligence report about the sinking of future president john f kennedy's pt 109
1: wow that's fascinating
0: so you missed the last one but because you got the bonus on the first you still went four for four ah sweet good work Well, folks, with that stunning performance by John Carlo, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and
1: Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
0: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Valia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.